You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech, where we switch between listening to Congolese bands blurring through distorted megaphones and janky beats, beats built on the latest sequencers, where we are just as happy playing jaw harps on loop pedals as we are zoning out with a Moog iPad app. I'm Dimitri Vitsa, I'm your host. I'm also the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors. We're a PR firm that specializes in music tech, and we are the company behind the Music Tectonics Conference coming up October 26th through 28th. You know that if you're a regular listener, because I keep talking about it, and I'm bringing you some of our great speakers and sponsors and partners into the mix on the podcast, and I'm excited today because I've got Brett Porter, the lead engineer for audio and music at Art & Logic. Brett, how's it going? It's going great today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you on. I think we first met at the, I think it was the New York Music Tech Meetup. Does that sound right to you? Either there or at Mondo NYC or at South By. I think that we were you know, near misses for a while. And I think yeah. uh, New York Music Tech may have been the first actual, hey, how are you? Yeah. And then we uh, really bonded at, at NAM, the, the big musical instrument and gear conference that's in Anaheim every January. That is a blast. I love that place. And I'm really sad that it's not happening next January. I've been going every year since 2000, and uh, it's really kind of become one of the you know, the focal points of my year to uh, look at what's coming up in the year ahead and you know, longer term trends and things that I wish were not the way that they were and see what I can do to make the industry move in a different direction. And that's kind of your world, Brett. I know your company, Art & Logic, is a software development firm. Um, doing a lot of different high-level tech solutions for a, a client base, and um, you know, working on mobile apps, web software, desktop, IoT. Um, but you're also branching into kind of uh, bridging software expertise with the the evolution of of new hardware. And your role, Brett, is in audio and music. So you probably have a blast at places like Nam because you're talking to the people, the manufacturers, and the inventors of all this stuff. Uh, yeah, definitely so. And I think, you know, Art & Logic really comes from that world. Um, we really started as a music software company, not a software company that thought music would be fun to play in. Uh, the company was actually founded back in the early 90s by three guys who had worked at a music software company back in the 80s uh, that had the bad decision making uh to base their entire product line around a computer called the Atari 1040 ST, which was, you know, in its day, kind of a cool machine, but the, the, you know, it's kind of forgotten to the sands of history at this point. So they kind of leapt together and said, well, we can do this on our own and had the the division of serving the audio and music instrument industries. But it turns out there's everybody in every industry needs software and smart guys, guys and gals, who can can work with clients and take their vision and turn it into reality are you know, valuable no matter what kind of, of world that is. So music has kind of been an undercurrent throughout the company's history, almost 30 years now. Uh, and a few years ago, I tricked the uh, upper management of the company into letting me focus on that part of it full time because that's where I come from. I'm, I actually have two degrees in music composition. Uh, I learned to write code uh, as part of a degree program in electronic and computer music, and you know, much to my dad's uh, everlasting surprise, managed to pick up a marketable skill in uh, music school. That's that's a great origin story. It's so cool to hear that. 
And uh, I'm excited because you guys are coming to Music Tectonics. You were exhibitors last year. This year, you're star sponsors, which mm-hmm. um, means you're even more involved. You'll still have a, a digital booth there, and uh, you'll be speaking on uh, a panel. Um, you guys are doing a, a couple things there. And uh, I just thought it would be fun to have you on and talk a little bit about your world and how you think about this stuff. Now, we've done in the past quite a bit of uh, episodes on artificial intelligence and, and music making. It's it's kind of a controversial subject. The, the controversy seems to have quieted a bit, but I only think that's because we've been distracted by so many other things. I mean, last year you pointed out to me um, that an album was released by an artist known as Skige that was written by deep learning algorithms and performed by humans. I'm curious what you think it means when machines are getting smarter and increasing their capabilities. It's an interesting time right now. And I think that there are a lot of fears that are overblown. I think there are a lot of fears that are reasonable to think about and talk about. Uh, the, the interesting thing about that, that Skiga record, uh, was that it's still everything is kind of in that uncanny valley situation where you listen to it and you're like this is close to something i would listen to but it's still kind of weird and i'm not sure why um and i I think that there are a lot of people who would kind of write that that whole idea off this is never going to be something that is going to be mistaken for something a human would have done and on the one hand maybe uh, the, there's an old saying that, you know, when uh, someone tells you that something is impossible, when a young person tells you something is impossible, believe them. But when an old person tells you something is impossible, they're wrong. Hmm. Uh, and, and if you look back at the history of technology, anything that, that we now take as being something that's part of the firmament that we just depend on every day, there was somebody at that point that said, no, this is never going to be anything. You know, personal computers are always going to be toys. And, you know, the people that made that bet went out of business a long, long time ago. So the, the question is, is AI in music something that is going to replace humans or is it something that's going to become a power tool for humans? Um, right. And, and I, I think that the people who are counting on this being something to replace humans are going to be, you know, sad. But I think anybody who's building these tools that are AI and ML under the hood to add to the capabilities of something that a human can use with judgment and taste, uh, I think there's, there's a lot of potential for power there. You know, uh, you know, we talk about music tectonics as a music tech conversation, both the conference and the podcast. We lean heavily into the recorded side and the live side of music versus the music making musical instrument side, but still see that as part of the same circle. And it's interesting when you start talking to people like you who are on the side of making stuff for people who are making instruments and uh, apps and things for music making there becomes a different conversation. You could say, oh, is AI replacing uh, musicians, artists, composers, or is it creating more access for more people to actually do the creative side of music rather than just the consumption side? Right, and you think about tools like just this week, uh, Isotope, who's an amazing music you know, tech company on the production side, uh, came out this week with a new reverb plugin that, is designed so that you don't need to have 20 years of recording studio experience to get a reverb that sounds awesome on the track that you're working on Mm. because they've taken one of the cool things that it turns out that they've done is they've been secretly, not secretly, but they've been getting 
audio tracks from their users for decades now. Uh, they've been, I think they just had their 20th anniversary. And for some subset of that, they've been bringing in audio that their users are recording. So they have this huge database of actual tracks that people are working on and actual operations that skilled and, you know, amateur recording engineers are, have applied to those tracks and they're able to take that and say, you know, what are the mistakes that people are making? What are, you know, when a Grammy winning engineer sits down with this, what do they do? How do they approach that problem? And how can we build our tools so that the bedroom producer can make use of the intelligence that that Grammy winning engineer has applied to those tracks with a couple of clicks rather than needing to know what every single dial on the, on the UI does. Um, and it's starting to be, you know, it, it's gone for me through that. That's a dumb idea to that's a terrifying idea to, oh, no, that's something that people are going to be able to get over that that skill hump and start making great music and not be stuck behind the. Yeah, I think back to cars a hundred years ago where you had to understand how to use the manual choke to get the engine to start. It's like, <laughs> no, you don't need to know how to do you know, adjust the air fuel balance. No, just get in and turn the switch and drive. Mm, yeah. And you know, what's interesting. If you look at all the plugins that are available now and the, and kind of the diversity and how prolific that's becoming as a, as a tool for any, any, a creator, a, a musical creator, composer, producer of any caliber, um, it, it does start to shift the whole way of thinking about it. I mean, you look at stuff that impacts vocals and all of a sudden people who never thought they could sing can still do a uh, vocal track. <laughs> right, right. Or, you know, the, the company here in New York City, Splice, who have this gargantuan database of samples and loops that you can pick and choose as an a la carte thing. You don't have to spend, you know, $1,000 to get a royalty cleared sample library. You can search through their, their database and say, this is the one I need for the track that I'm working on, drop it in and, you know, make use of their network of people that are putting great content into that system for you to purchase from. Well, let's let's dig into this a little bit. That that same uh, that same artist known as Skiga, there was a uh, a creator of the software that that uh, wrote wrote that music was hired by Spotify to run a new vision, new division. What what does that say about the consumption side of of how AI will influence the music space? Well, it's it's kind of that that to me is still a little bit terrifying. Um, that the the person's name is Francois Pache, and he had been working for a bunch of years at a division of Sony in Paris, working on a piece of software they called Flow Machines, that was doing all of this really high-level, you know, generative deep learning work to figure out how music is structured and how it's made and how the, the various pieces work together. And the the fear, I, certainly I have a lot of friends in, in the recording industry and people that are recording artists that have a very uneasy relationship with Spotify as it is. And the question is, you know, is Spotify trying to put me out of business? Are they trying to create content? Because you think about all of those, you look at the, the, the playlists that Spotify is featuring, and there are a lot of, you know, deep concentration playlists and ambient playlists. And the question is, is that content something that, you know, these guys could sit down and just generate live on the fly and completely remove humans out of the, 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 the loop there? Maybe. I don't know. I, it's, it, I don't know what they're planning. 
Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Um, there's so many ways, directions that could go. Um, and it's not the only technological kind of advancement, innovation shift that is influencing music making. Last year, an album was nominated for a Grammy that was entirely produced on an iPad. Uh, what's going to happen, Brett, when pro quality recording gear keeps getting smaller and cheaper and more accessible? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting switch. Um, the, the the engineer and producer that worked on that, if, if anyone wants to look up, is a guy out of Atlanta called Henny the Business is, is the, the name that he goes under. And it's really interesting to watch that world because you know, it wasn't that long ago where to do pro quality work, you know, you had to go into a studio, not just because the gear was there, but because, you know, there was this really nicely tuned room that you could go in and put really high quality mics in. And it's turning out now that people are doing pro quality work with really inexpensive gear. Um, and the, the cost keeps coming down to the point where, you know, literally an iPad with a, a mic adapter and some additional outboard gear, everything else is done in plugins. Everything else is just you and your artist and whatever talent the, the two or three people that you have involved can bring to it. So on the one hand, it's going to make a lot more noise. Uh, it, it's like in the publishing industry, when desktop publishing started, you know, you'd get all these people that would come in and they would have, Oh my goodness, I've got this thing I can have. I've got a thousand fonts. I need to use every one of the fonts in every document <laughs> that I make. And everything that came out of that era looked like a ransom note. <laughs> right. Yes. And so I think you're going to go through that where you have a lot of people who come in here and they want to use every effect on every track and it's going to sound like garbage and it's going to take a while for people to come to the tools without having gone through the traditional, you know, studio apprenticeship thing and come at it with taste from 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 the start with those tools. But then you know, I talked to friends of mine who are professors in, in universities now, and it was kind of astonishing me to me to learn, you know, when I went to music school back in the 80s, you had to have a, a traditional principal instrument. It didn't matter if you were going through the music engineering program, you still had to be a guitarist or a horn player or a vocalist or something traditional. And there are people going through music schools now that literally their principal instrument is their laptop. Mm hmm. Um, you know, Princeton and Stanford both have laptop orchestras now. Hmm. Wow. And that's, you know, that's, that's like literally how your entree, it's not like you have to have started taking piano lessons from the age of six to get into a top ranked music school anymore. And uh, to, to, you know, crusty old guy like me, I want to like that because I'm a music tech guy. I make software for a living and I want those people to use the kind of tools that I use. But I, I don't know what it's like to be 18 and coming into music without that structure. Mm -hmm. People are doing it. So it, it's got to work at some level. I just don't know 100% how to wrap my head around it all the time. Yeah, I mean, they're going to approach the the framework for music making totally different, right? If you don't have the music theory, if you don't use, if you don't read music, if you don't, um, yeah, if you don't have a piano or guitar kind of structure that that lays out chord progressions you know if you start with beats first i mean that stuff's already happening in certain genres that's the other interesting thing about the the technology the plugins the 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 different things that people are using is that some of them are genre specific mm -hmm. and uh and 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 when you talked about how it could have this very weird 
messy collage feel like a ransom note of fonts um, because people would cut together these font, you know, these, these newspaper clippings and put together words and that, that, it, that it doesn't have any kind of uniformity or flow or anything like that. In reality, some of those particular sound effects um, d- define the genre, right? If you look at something like uh, autotune, for example. Right. And, and the other thing that, that has to be remembered is that, you know, new value frameworks are going to emerge out of all of this, where right. this generation is going to come by and they're not going to care, you know, what, what older people think about it. And it's really interesting. I'm, I'm still, you know, online, I follow a lot of, you know, young, you know, PhD musicology people. And just this morning I was watching, you know, reading through this thread of, you know, PhD musicologists that are doing analyses of the rhythmic stuff going inside on inside of hip hop tracks and trying to figure out to what extent does our background even apply here Hmm. and trying to figure out what the tools and thought processes that they need to bring to bear on this new music that's coming out so that they can treat it seriously and, you know, make sense of it within, you know, its own world and the larger world of music as a whole. It's funny. It goes back to the the turntable being some, a, a tool for a tool for consumption and turning into a tool for production. You know, music's mm-hmm. in the, music production's in the hands of the masses when you take leftover equipment and, and turn it into music making stuff, which has been do, done in experimental music, you know, forever. Right? Like you look at what's been done with reel to reel. Sure, uh, like all the music, music concrete stuff back in the fifties yeah. that was going on, and then but you get this other layer when you've got people that are assembling beats and tracks out of pre-existing uh, elements that exist. Is you know you bring into the question you know whole, the whole thing of authorship. Who owns that? Who created right. that? Right. Um, and that was a thing when when Kendrick won the the Pulitzer a year or two ago. It's the Pulitzer went to, to Kendrick, but you look at the credits on that and there are co-writer credits, you know, 40 or 50 people involved at various levels of authorship on that. You know, does the idea of authorship even really have a meaning going forward or different? Yeah. What, what, what is that meaning? Right. Yeah. So look, I don't want to lose the thread about mobile, uh, mobile apps and mobile music creation. Are there examples of mobile music making apps that couldn't have existed before that that intrigue you um what what do they do um either either in terms of just what the functionality is versus um you know being specific about a, a particular app that you like well it's, it's interesting because on the one end you have you know basically people trying to take traditional multi-track recording gear and putting that into an ipad form factor mm-hmm. which is very cool and it's inevitable and a lot of people are going to do interesting work. And then at the other hand, you have people that are doing things where the iPad in that form factor kind of becomes a new different kind of instrument where suddenly you have an interface where you, you can put all 10 fingers on the iPad screen and every one of them, it's a multi-touch interface. So you can work with sound in a much more malleable way. Um, you know, there are things like uh, the guy out of somewhere in Pennsylvania, William Fields, who's basically created his own software to do real time performance on the fly. And it really only makes sense in that kind of touchpad control interface. Hmm. Or there are whole new you know, kinds of you know, granular based synthesizers where it's almost like you're reaching inside of the iPad to manipulate things directly in ways that you couldn't have done, you know, with pre-existing hardware. hardware. Yeah. Interesting. Very Cause there cool. is no hardware. It's just, it's just a piece of glass that you're kind of touching and manipulating directly. 
Yeah, right. And there's there's gestures and and things you can do that you can't do when there's buttons, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Well, speaking of hardware, I, I mean, not long ago, starting a hardware company around the, an invention was, you know, so expensive you couldn't really do it. But thanks to things like cell phone man, manufacturing and, and other things that have led to an economy of scale, it's created, uh, you know, uh, less difficulty in uh, prototyping new new hardware. And uh, you can do things like have a Kickstarter campaign to finance uh, a product to market. What are you seeing on the hardware side that that's uh, coming out as a result of this access to, to manufacturing and, and financing? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting work being done just because you can buy cheap sensors. Uh, you mm. can go there, you know, online places like Adafruit and, 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 and sources like that that just have these incredible arrays of the stuff that's built into your cell phone, but isn't being used necessarily for artistic reasons. And, you know, then you've got prototyping platforms like the Arduino, or specifically in the audio world, there's this incredible system out of England called the Bela, which has an incredible pound of, amount of digital signal processing built in, plus a computer. So it's a matter of kind of plugging pre-existing stuff together and writing just enough software to make everything talk to each other that you can get these incredibly complex pieces of gear put together in a way that you can demonstrate them. And there are, you know, there's a, a bunch of people who, you know, in the academic world, especially, who just build weird custom instruments where kind of the, the piece and the instrument are the same thing. Oh, yeah. Which is a cool thing to do. But you can also say, okay, I've got all these pieces together. And this is something that's really interesting to do. I need a million dollars to to spin up a factory someplace and start putting these things together in a, a form that I can sell. And you see companies like Artifon and uh, there's a few others out of Europe right now that are putting these, these Kickstarters up. Artifon put out an instrument called the Instrument One, which is uh, a MIDI controller that's multi-touch and self-contained and can be played like a guitar, can be can played like a keyboard, can be played like a drum. And it was the most successful Kickstarter campaign that's ever happened. Um, so there's yeah. a lot of market and interest in things that are not just a guitar or a keyboard or, you know, heaven forbid, a keytar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you for suggestions of other interesting new hardware devices uh, to check out. Are there more on the list that that you've seen came along with this? Yeah, there are. There's, um, you know, not just the Artifon, the original, the instrument one, they have a thing uh, that they've just started shipping sometime this year called the Orba, which is like a self-contained, it's like about the size of a hockey puck. Mm -hmm. And it's got a weird little circular interface on the top that you can play sound. It's got a self-contained synthesizer built right into it. You can, via MIDI, use that to control other gear. Um, it understands where it is in space. So you can be playing it, and depending on how you've got it tilted in 3D space, you can affect the sound that way. Um, that's really cool. Roly, who's a company out of England that has done a lot with uh, inventing and really reproducing this, is a new standard called MPE, which is MIDI Polyphonic Expression, which lets you have, basically you can design a keyboard, and, and they've done this, where it's not just pressing down the, the C key makes a C and you can make it louder or softer. It knows where up and down the surface of the key you're touching it. So you can you know, change the quality of the sound by moving your fingers around on the keyboard. And again, it's this very fluid, uh, flowy thing that in the hands of somebody who's really skilled with it is an incredible instrument. 
And they just this past week or so started shipping a new instrument uh, that they had financed with a Kickstarter called the Lumi, which is designed, uh, it's got these incredibly bright LEDs underneath each of the keys. So from an educational standpoint, it comes paired with an app. So you don't necessarily maybe want to have your kids do old school you know, piano lessons. But with this, it's almost like a cross between piano lessons and Guitar Hero. Oh, so, you know, the, the red key up here is on. You, you press the red key on your keyboard and it, it, it's all you know tied together in this tight little you know, ecosystem. Yeah, I could see it being a lot easier to learn learn that way, especially if you've got multiple fingers you got to put down at the same time. And um, you're getting those visual indications that are not just trying to understand what's on the um, uh, on the sheet music. And you think back to the Guitar Hero days, how many kids could have been really great guitarists? if the guitar hero controller was more like a real guitar and less like a thing with switches on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, going back to what you were saying about, about Roly is there seems to be this emergence of these more expressive instruments where you have kind of a less rectangular shape and a more squishy feel what's behind the shift of that. Um, and I guess it, it relates to the, um, to the, the orb shaped uh, instrument that you mentioned as well. So, so what's, what's going on that's leading to these types of instruments? Well, I think to a large extent, it's everything we've already talked about just kind of overlapping in time. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is there are things being done now that there was just no way to build the hardware to make them happen until mm-hmm. recently. So the fact that somebody can come up with an idea and test it out and make it something real means that people are going to do that. It, right. It's kind of inevitable. So there is the capability to do it. And, you know, I've been in the, in the music instrument biz for about 30 years now, and you see, you know, waves of innovation and, you know, counter innovation. And when I first got into things in the late 80s was really when digital recording in general was something that was finally feasible. And it wasn't something that required you to buy, you know, spend literally like the Sinclair, which was the, the first really big significant Sinclair or Fairlight were about the same era. You know, if you wanted one of those pieces of gear, you were talking to get a real installation, like, like the one that Frank Zappa had when, when he did all of his stuff in the late eighties, he put in like over a quarter million dollars in that one piece of equipment, wow. which is, you know, out of reach. But now, you know, there are both Sinclair and Fairlight plugins that you can buy for under a hundred dollars that give you <laughs> the entire capability of that quarter million dollar system on your laptop for an extra hundred bucks. Wow. So that that's part of it. And also just, you know, that was, there was a lot of innovation when those new capabilities became available. And then the industry kind of got conservative for a while. And you look around, you know, the early two thousands and there was a lot of copycat stuff happening and a lot of interest in trying to perfectly replicate, you know, retro gear. You know, there was a lot of people with PhDs trying to exactly replicate the capabilities of a piece of gear that was invented by accident in 1960. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of washed its way through the system. And now you've got this new generation that's coming in and saying, you know, I'm really not interested in retro gear. I want to do something mm-hmm. new. And they're coming in and saying, how can we use, you know, the computer technology that we have that's doing really awesome stuff elsewhere and bring that into our, our, our umbrella. 
That's that's kind of cool because what you're saying is there's this moment where kind of the, the, the cost of hardware and kind of the access or kind of facsimile replication of doing things that was done in hardware and software led to a lot of derivative instrument building. Mm-hmm. And now people are like, okay, cool. We, 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 we flexed on all that stuff. Now we can actually start to create new stuff with these various tools and, and components. It, it's almost like you have a generation that doesn't know what they're not supposed to be able to do, so they do it. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, this has been fun uh, just talking about kind of the overall landscape. You've clearly uh, got a a, a grasp on a wide variety of things, probably because of the projects uh, you've worked on. What are some of the hardest problems you've worked on in music and audio? Um, Well, technically hardest was in in the early 2000s. Um, there was a, a weird transition in the music instrument industry where things were really at that point switching finally over from big recording studio gear to things being able to be done completely inside the box in a laptop or a you know, desktop computer and had a client, um, one of the big Japanese music instrument companies that had a, a box that was really awesome. It was basically a tiny recording studio console. You could carry under your arm kind of had, you know, it faders, it had mic preamps. So you could plug into this thing, use it like it was a regular full recording studio. It had a CD burner. Everything you needed to, to do was inside of that box. And it sold really well for a while. And then as, you know, Pro Tools and, and systems like that started to become more powerful, you started to see things moving into a plug-in uh, ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And that was when Auto-Tune started to really take off. And everybody that was going to buy this piece of gear from my client said, this is really great. Can I run Auto-Tune on it? And they like, grumbled, no, you can't run Auto-Tune on it. There's no way to do plugins. So I worked with them to develop a card and a software development kit so that companies like Antares could put auto-tune inside of that box, hmm. which was really cool, except that the capabilities of that uh, standalone uh, virtual studio were really small. So all of these things that were really easy to do, even in the early 2000s on a Macintosh, were almost impossible to do inside of that box. So hmm. the hard thing was coming up with clever techniques to simulate and get as close uh, to what you could do on a, a modest Macintosh at the time inside of that embedded environment. And it, it's kind of one of these things where now like the, the, the developers that we're hiring now, it, it's like ghost stories we tell around the campfire. <laughs> well, let me let me tell you what I had to do on an 8-bit microcontroller try, that didn't have floating point support. And they all kind of run and scream because it's, you know grandpa telling scary yeah. stories and and what about now what are the what are the hardest problems to solve now in, in music and audio and and what what's going to help get us to the next level actually i think the problem is in the other direction hmm. um, which is a weird thing and, and i look back at gear electronic music gear that we love you know hmm. Pieces that are really revered. And one of the reasons that, you know, the original Lindrum is revered or the original emulator keyboard is, or, you know, the original Moog, they were all built in a world where there were very real constraints. And a lot of the personality of that gear comes from how did the inventors get around the limited capabilities of what that thing could do? And when you're in an environment where, Every piece of gear you touch can do anything you can think of. I, I see a lot of uh, synthesizers and plugins 
that have no character because there's no reason for them to have character because they can do anything. So they kind of do everything in kind of a boring way to my ears. Oh, wow. Huh. Interesting. So, so I, I think from a design and product management standpoint, it's how do you figure out what can you take away from a product so that you're forced to be creative when you build the product? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So it's almost like, um, you, you have to come up with a user experience that has enough limitations to guide the user to, to create something unique, to create a voice for the instrument rather than sitting down at an iPad that you can touch anywhere on it, but it'll, you know, there's no, it feels almost random. Like what, what, what what's it going to make next, you know? Right. Or, you know, you see these synthesizer plugins that are just literally an entire screen filled with tiny little, a thousand tiny little knobs. And when there's that much flexibility, people end up just saying, well, I'm just going to use the presets because this is overwhelming. I, I can't, I can't do sound design on this. I can't patch this other than tiny little tweaks because there's just, it's option overload. Yeah. You know, something else you've been involved with is MIDI 2.0. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm curious what is new with that and what kind of opportunities that creates in this world of, of musical instruments making. There's a couple different ways to attack that. And MIDI 2.0 really solves two different problems. Um, and one of them is that obviously MIDI or MIDI that everybody has used was first rolled out in 1983. And it's kind of got 1983 baked into it, you know, technically. It's uh, not a very smart protocol from the 2020 point of view, uh, which means that when you go and buy a new piece of gear that's got MIDI in it, uh, it's very difficult to build a piece of MIDI one gear that is friendly to work with and configure. You either use it at a very surface level, or if you want to do something more advanced with it, you have to sit down and really read through the manual and get very deeply technical with it. Um, Like in the same way that 25 years ago when you bought a printer, it'd be all afternoon before you get the printer working successfully with your computer. And now you go, you go to Staples, you buy a new HP printer, you plug it into your laptop and it just works. They they talk to each other, they can figure out what each end is on each end of the thing, drivers get downloaded and stuff just gets, get just works. And one of the things that MIDI 2 brings is that kind of intelligence where plugging a piece of MIDI 2 gear into your computer is going to start a conversation and your DAW is going to talk to that keyboard and say, who are you? What do you know how to do? Okay, I know how to work with that. And things will just auto configure themselves in a very, very smart and very low effort way, Mm. which from a musician's playability standpoint is really cool. Um, and in fact, one of the earlier this spring, I replaced my old, old keyboard with a new c- keyboard from Native Instruments, the, the Complete. And it comes with its built in you know, piece of software that runs on my computer. And they're very tightly integrated. And it's been very cool for me to not I mean, I'm the kind of guy who loves digging into manuals and, and figuring all that stuff out. Um, but it was really cool to just plug it in and have stuff just work. And that was kind of the first indication at an emotional level. I had of uh, you know what that part of MIDI 2 is going to be like. And that's one thing. And the rest of MIDI 2 that, that to me is maybe a little more exciting is MIDI 1 was this, you know, designed in a world where every bit that you sent over the wire was expensive and you wanted to rest- constrain them and you wanted to not send any more data than you had to because 
the wire you were sending it over couldn't handle a lot of data and the computer you were sending it to couldn't handle a lot of data. And you know, that's obviously not where we are right now. So one of the things that MIDI 2 brings are these much more data intensive uh, control messages between devices, which gives you a lot more, almost, almost like an analog kind of control between devices, which mm -hmm. is going to allow, again, really, really super expressive instruments to be built. And earlier we had talked about MPE for polyphonic expression. In MIDI 2.0, that just gets blown off to the extent where any note that you're playing on a, a MIDI 2.0 controller any attribute of that note can be controlled completely independent from any other notes that you're playing. So we don't even know what that means because the controllers and keyboards to interact at that level don't really exist yet. Mm. So it'll bring a lot more kind of control of complexity of individual disaggregating all those notes and, and being able to control each one separately. Right. Right. So musicians are just going to have all these really new capabilities that I think it's going to take another 20, 30 years to shake out all wow. the potential there. Wow. And it's super interesting just to hear about the first part of what you were saying in terms of just the setup and, and creating access to this connection between hardware and a computer and just it working because now MIDI 2.0 allows the devices to talk to each other in a way that, that really kind of uh, takes away some of that process. I mean, that's one of the things that probably keeps people from getting into certain electronic music making is just how do you get the gear and then how do you set it up and make it work, all the interoperability of it. So um, that, that'll be super cool to see as that emerges. Uh, where do you see music making going in the next maybe five, 10 years? Um, I think it's going to take two divergent paths. Um, and I think we're starting this. We've talked about this a little on this call, um, where at the one end, it's really going to open up the capabilities of making music to anybody who's interested. And that, that may not be you know, getting a synthesizer and playing on a keyboard, but we're seeing a lot of work with, uh, you know, DJ style controllers. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing a lot of work with things like the Ableton Push or the Novation Launch Station, which are basically these grid controllers that allow you to launch things and, again, build musical content out of pre-existing elements and create new, new things from those pieces which, you know, at a certain level is nothing, you know, no composer has designed 100% of the instruments they've used in their pieces. You know, an orchestral composer sits down and knows what an orchestra is and what it can do. Um, there's a conceptual level where dealing with a sample library is really the same kind of thing. Hmm. Um, so that's at one end. And then at the other end, we're going to see just way more capabilities than we can even conceive of right now. Because processors keep getting more powerful and machine learning and AI capabilities keep getting more powerful. And you're seeing things like the, the new Apple products are being built with special new silicon that doesn't know how to do anything but run AI algorithms on it. Hmm. So when that capability is there, you're going to see a lot more hard, hard work being pushed off to the machine and humans being in an editorial role and in a control role and being able to work at a higher level of abstraction, I think. Mm. Wow. So you've got kind of access on one end and you've got infinite possibilities on the other. <laughs> yeah. So I think that the interesting challenge for, for guys like me in the next 20 years is going to be, how do you take somebody that comes into the, the system on one end and get bridge them, them to the down. other end of that gap? Yeah. 
Wow. Well, that sounds like a blast, Brad. I, you must love what you do. It beats having a real job, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we started off the conversation talking about conferences and, uh, and, and the importance of getting to see this stuff and meet people and so forth. You guys are coming out to Music Tectonics. I'd be curious to ask you, what are you hoping to get out of the conference? Um, well, I mean, what my bosses hope is that we find people that are looking for companies like us who want to have projects done and we can work on them because that we're the best people in the world to work on those projects. Um, from a selfish standpoint, I love going to conferences to bump up against ideas that have never you know, been in front of me before. And uh, that's certainly what happened at Music Tectonics last year. Um, and I'm really looking forward to being exposed to people who are thinking about things differently than I do and are involved in different parts of the, the industry than I am, uh, you know, not just the music creation side, but the music monetization side and understanding how those two things feed each other. Awesome. Well, last year we did have some some crazy stuff. We had a we had a uh, a device that took in these these sensors from a plant and made music with that. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that was in the lobby. And we had AI's Got Talent, a talent show for artificial intelligence. This year we've got some really great topics. Everything from social video to the future of making music, which you're a part of the future of listening and, and the listening experiences. Um, and we also have all that other stuff around kind of monetization, new revenue streams, uh, monetizing fandom, things like that. But something that we've leaned heavily into is the other part of your answer, which is getting to meet people and talk to people. So after every single session, we've got speed networking built in where you will get just meet up with somebody serendipitously that's there and you'll be on a one-on-one video chat for a few minutes. And uh, you can also reach out to anyone else that's attending the conference and initiate a chat, a video chat with them right out of the gate. So I'm hoping, Brett, that you get both the, the top-level ideas as well as the, the chance to meet new people, connect with companies and Really, I'm hoping you get business done because that's really how we've structured the conference. I'm really excited you're going to be there speaking, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk about these great ideas. Right on. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll see you in a couple weeks. All right, Brett? It's a deal. See you there. All right. And thank you for listening to the podcast. You should come to the Music Tectonics Conference. It's taking place October 26th through 28th. We've got the top level ideas and we've got the structure to let you meet people and get business done. Go to musictectonics.com to find out more and uh, we'll see you at the conference. You're listening to Music Tectonics.